I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our connection to our own humanity. This is episode 59, another joint episode with Melita Thomas of Tudor Times on Anne of Denmark. Just to note that the Renaissance English History Podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, and the Agora Podcast of the Month is the History of Islam Podcast, which is available at historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com, or all of the general podcasty sorts of places like iTunes and Pocket Casts. So again, the History of Islam podcast. We also have a really special giveaway going on for the next week. So Tudor Times has just launched a brand new shop filled with all kinds of cool stuff inspired by Tudor architecture. And there's a great quotes range as well. So if you go to englandcast.com and check out the giveaway post, there's also an image on the page. We're doing a giveaway to be entered to win a set of four Elizabeth I quote mugs. So these are mugs, a set of mugs that have quotes by Elizabeth I. And they are a fantastic way to start your morning with your coffee or end your day with your chamomile tea or whichever you prefer or both. So go to englandcast.com to enter, and you can enter until next Friday, the 11th. Yeah, the 9th and 11th of November. So if you're listening to this after that, I'm sorry you've missed out. The early bird catches the worm. (laughs) Okay, so moving on from the admin bit, let's talk about Anne of Denmark now. Let me first introduce you to Melita. Melita is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history in the period from 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970 series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. We started the interview with me asking her why Anne was special and why she chose her as the person of the month. A very interesting cultural influence, uh, not so much in Scotland because Scotland was um, quite a quite a poor country. But once she became Queen of England, she really raised the cultural tone of the English court or I mean, they called it um, Great Britain by then because James was very keen to be known as King of Great Britain. So he and Anne called themselves King and Queen of Great Britain. And she she 
sort of put it culturally back on the map after Elizabeth, who, although, you know, there'd been a great deal of cultural innovation in Elizabeth's reign with uh, Shakespeare and Ben Jonson and all the rest of them, her court wasn't quite so cultured as, as Anne's interests were. So so that's why Anne's interesting. Also, she was um, she was the daughter of the King of Denmark. And he, he was King of Denmark and Norway. And her brother, Christian of Denmark, was became quite an influential king in the early 17th century. So, again, it was it, it was a time when Great Britain was was moving back into a relationship with Europe after the sort of 40 or 50 years of the after the Reformation when it was you know much more isolated. So so she she's interesting actually, and her domestic relationships they seem curiously modern mm. in some ways. Her relationship with her husband. So, so that's that's all proved quite interesting. Tell me about her life. What was her early life like before she came to Scotland? And she seems to have been really close to her family. How did that influence her relationship with her own children? You mentioned her court being or her relationships being kind of modern. Tell me about that. Yeah, she she was the second daughter of Frederick II. He was he was king of Denmark and Norway, as I said, and his wife was Sophie of. Mecklenburg-Gustroff, which is one of those many, many small German principalities that that are in northern Germany. And Queen Sophie, she was a very influential figure in Denmark, although she was only 17 when Anne was born. But she was unusually close to her parents, who frequently visited the Danish court. The Danish royal children spent, and including Anne, spent some of their childhood at their grandparents' home in Germany. And there seems to have been a much more frequent visiting backwards and forwards of the families, much more time spent together than is is normal with royal families of the period, because frequently a daughter would marry and, you know, she'd never see her parents again. But but Queen Sophie's parents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, went backwards and forwards. And Sophie herself was very attached to her children. She breastfed them herself, which wow. raised a few eyebrows at the time. <laughs> yes. And this this obviously influenced Anne in that she she seems to have had a, a good relationship with her brother, who later came to visit her in England when she was Queen of England, and in fact led to one of the biggest quarrels she ever had with her own husband about the upbringing of her children. She wanted to keep them very close to her and bring them up as as she'd been brought up in this sort of family. But the custom in Scotland was certainly for the oldest son to be brought up quite separately from, from the court mainly for his own protection because the Scottish monarchy had been quite troubled over the last hundred years, obviously. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots, had become queen as a baby and there were threats of kidnapping. Then when James himself became king as a baby, he was he was there was potential for him to be abducted. So it was thought to be very important that the heir be kept, kept very safe. But Anne was completely horrified when James said that her little boy was going to be taken from her and, and brought up separately. Mm-hmm. She she was distraught, had a, had a miscarriage, had a, you know, complete, almost almost a breakdown. Um, yeah, no, it, I mean, it's awful because you, you can see James's point of view. He wanted to keep the child safe, uh, but Anne, it was just so outside her experience. And she was only, you know, she was still quite young when, when her first child was born. James did relent and not in relation to their oldest son, but their younger children were, she had much more influence and, and uh, control of their, their lives than of her oldest son. Mm. 
but yeah no quite quite sad for her that yeah well what was her relationship like with James and how did it change throughout the years and once they got to England there was about eight years difference in their age group in their age she was about uh, 14 or 15 when they got married and he was in his early 20s but they they had both in in line with the custom of the time. They both decided before they got married that they were very much in love and they sent each other formal letters. And when it was rumoured that the marriage wouldn't take place, it was said that Anne would, would die of grief if it didn't take place. So that they they framed their minds to be in love. And that was and that was a good thing. You were supposed to love your spouse. So, so they tried to do that. And certainly to begin with, they seemed to have been, um, you know, very fond of each other. They had, they had 10... 10 pregnancies Anne had. So although James's sexuality has been the subject of questioning, and I think we talked about it on a previous yeah. occasion, you know, he, he he did manage to give his wife 10, 10 babies, which would suggest, um, you know, he wasn't as averse to women's company as all that. Right. She had, she had three sons. Um, unfortunately, one died as a baby and her eldest died as at 18. And they had five, five daughters who were born, and there were some miscarriages, so they had they had a big family. So to begin with, they they were they were quite close, but there was a, an age gap between them. James was very highly educated, and although Anne, we don't know much about her actual education, she spoke French, which she learnt especially so that she and James could converse when they first met. Her first language was probably Danish or German, and she learnt Scots after after she married. But she didn't have the academic education that James had had, so they probably weren't intellectually that close. What makes me say it's kind of like a modern marriage is that when he talked about marriage in the book he wrote for his son, he said that marriage is the greatest earthly felicity or misery that can come <laughs> to a man. <laughs> and he complained when she became Queen of England and appointed new ladies in waiting, he complained that you know, he didn't like her choice. He didn't like her friends. She complained that he drank too much, you know, and, and, and sort of neglected her. And then her chaplain said that they did love as well as man and wife could do after they stopped sleeping together, which seems to have been about 1606. Mm -hmm. So they they rubbed along pretty well. But, you know, there, there were quite frequent rows. And then they'd make up and he'd give her a present. And then they'd have another row. And, you know, a bit like, um, you know, Darby and Joan, really. Right. Interesting. When she got to England, how was she received? And did she have any kind of power over policy or over James by the time they got to, to London? Not really. I mean, in the 1590s in Scotland, she had, I mean, Scottish politics was very factional in, in that period. And, and with her dislike of the Earl of Mar, who was the guardian of, of the young prince she she really took against him uh she was she did become slightly involved in politics she disliked james's chancellor uh, maitland sir john maitland partly because he had tried to block the marriage he didn't want james to marry anne so when anne found out she she seems to she seems to have been able to bear a grudge a bit mm -hmm. she she never forgave marsh she never forgave maitland also, Maitland tried to hang on to some property that James had given Anne, and he refused to hand it over. Mm. But when Anne fell pregnant, um, she put pressure on James to, to put Maitland in his place, so he did. And then the, the biggest political issue was the belief that she'd converted to Catholicism. 
Now, it's it's never been definitively proved that she she did actually formally become a Catholic, but in Calvinist Scotland, this was not, you know, not a good thing. And James himself seems to have had no interest in forcing other people's religious beliefs. Uh, he was born and brought up a Protestant, as as Anne had been, and he never wavered in that. But you know, for, for Anne to become a Catholic was definitely a bad bad publicity for him so she, she didn't make an open declaration about it but there was some disquiet in England when she refused to take communion according to the Anglican rite at her coronation mm. so so people weren't very happy about that mm. um, but she didn't have much political power partly possibly the age gap also James James thought very well of his own opinions and he wasn't necessarily going to be influenced by it by a much younger wife. So, so she turned her attention really to what you might call soft power. She was very, very interested in cultural matters. She, she was interested in architecture, in painting, in music and dance. And her role sort of became to make the English or the Great British Court, as, as they thought themselves, a sort of cultural icon rather than get involved in political power. Uh, she did have some influence in regard to the marriage of her sons when brides were being looked for, first for, for Henry, the Prince of Wales, who, who died in 1612, and then for Prince Charles. There are letters in the European archives that suggest that Anne was very much in favour of a of a marriage um, to a Catholic princess for for either of her sons, and the European monarchs seemed to think she was worth influencing if they could. Mm-hmm. So she was obviously felt to have some power over James, but it wasn't wasn't huge. So tell me a, about her patronage of the arts, and you mentioned architecture. I know Inigo Jones and all of that. Yes. Yes, Inigo Jones was was her protege, definitely. Um, she she worked with him not just in architecture on the large scale, refurbishing Whitehall. I mean, sadly, the banqueting house that is there now postdates Anne's life. The the first banqueting house, which was built just after she died, burnt down. Mm. So so what we see now isn't Anne's, but you know probably there is some of her influence in it, and also the the original Queen's house at Greenwich was built for Anne, but again, it was remodelled later for for her daughter-in-law, Henrietta Maria. Mm. But Inigo Jones didn't just build buildings. He was right-hand man for the sets and scenery and stage settings for the great masks that that the Queen favoured. And these were enormously sumptuous productions of dance and music and play-acting, costumes were were created of you know quite extraordinary extravagance and beauty and and scene scenery was built and music was written and dances were choreographed and Inigo Jones created a number of the different costumes you can see pictures of them at in the in the V&A collection really really fabulous um costumes then her another great interest she had was jewelry she loved she loved jewellery, and I think that was a taste she got from her mother, who, uh, when she first married, gave her an enormous amount of jewellery, particularly pearls. Mm. And James also gave her quite a bit of jewellery. And when she inherited Elizabeth I's massive wardrobe, uh, you can see she's 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 permanently draped in pearls, mm. as 
most of the 16th century women loved pearls, uh, ladies, and, and Anne, she's, she's got them all over the place. And if you look at some of her portraits, you can see rather interesting jewellery. So she spent quite a, quite a bit of money. She had a, a jewellery maker, a, a goldsmith called George Herriot from Edinburgh, who she brought to England with her to keep keep manufacturing stuff for her. She also painting the visual arts. Three of the great painters whom she patronised were Marcus Gerhardt's, who painted some very some very large full-size portraits of her, of James, of their children. And he was her, her official Queen's painter and was in her funeral procession as, as the Queen's painter. Uh, she also patronised Sir Isaac Oliver, who at the right at the other end of the scale did the tiny, tiny little miniatures on, on ivory that we associate with the end of Elizabeth's reign and the beginning of, uh, you know, the Jacobean period. She patronised Paul von Sommer, another Netherlandish painter. She seems to have liked the, the Dutch and Netherlandish styles, mm. which became increasingly popular. And you can see this taste transferred to her son, Charles I, who was also, um, you know, one of the, the, the greatest art collectors in, in British royal history. He, he created, you know, a fantastic collection. Uh, you know, and I, I would suggest that he was heavily influenced by, by his mother in, in this. And then there was the other painter who, uh, who was considered to be James's painter. So she had Gerhardt's and James had Daniel Mitten's, or Mitten's, another, another Netherlandish portraitist. But there's a there's a lot of portraiture from the Jacobean period that you know I think Anne is probably responsible for because of course once the Queen thinks it's fashionable, everybody's everybody's following suit. Sure. Outside the masks, there was also the more ordinary play, plays and and so forth. She and James both enjoyed plays, and they had their own you know the King's Men who had once been the Shakespeare's company, and the Queen had her own players. She was good friends with Mary Sidney, the Countess of Pembroke, who was a noted author herself and also the the centre of a large group of sort of cultural of poets and playwrights and so forth. Mm. And she introduced the Queen to Ben Jonson. It was a whole a whole sort of cultural melee of things that, that Anne Anne was interested in. How has her reputation changed throughout the years? I can you can definitely see it undergoing change. She she was never much talked about in the past, and then when the you know the great nineteenth century and twentieth century historians, you know the Whig tradition of of history, they're all very very interested in, in wars and treaties. They're not really interested in wider social history. And I think in the last fifteen twenty years, as we've become much more interested in what I called before soft power and uh, cultural history and material culture, Anne is now being seen as m- having a, a much more important place than just, you know, James's James's wife who was supposed to be delivering children from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there there is much more interest in the kinds of things that she did and that she promoted. Um, sadly, there doesn't seem to be a modern biography of her. There is a cultural biography of her that was published in in two thousand by somebody called Leeds Barrel, which is an unusual name and I haven't come across before, but it was very much looking at the, the, the cultural aspects rather than her as a as an individual. But yeah, so she was frequently written off as frivolous and extravagant and, you know, money wasting. And again, the, the sort of traditional Whig historian, you know, they're pretty ambivalent about her Catholic leanings, to say, say the best. I think she's right. going to come into her own, actually. I think I wouldn't be at all surprised to see 
a, a biography of her or, or more interest in her as as people become much more interested in how people lived rather than just the politics and the high politics of the time. Her time has come. <laughs> <laughs> and you're contributing to that. Well, hopefully, yes. I'm, I'm, yeah, the more I read, I mean, one of the other aspects of it that's not, not so attractive, although I, I haven't any evidence about Anne's thoughts on the matter, was the whole witchcraft piece. James became very concerned about witchcraft, and it was partly based on his experience of his marriage to Anne, because when when she was she was married by proxy, and there the was idea, the storm, right? The storm, that's yeah. It. Tell me about it. Yeah, so she she was married by proxy, and James was back in Scotland, and the plan was that she would she would sail to Scotland, and, and all would be well. But she set off lateish in the year for a for a trip from Norway to Scotland in a large fleet. She she travelled with eighteen huge ships full of horses and jewels and she had a silver coach. Well, I mean the coach wasn't literally made of silver, you know, like Cinderella, but the coach, uh-huh. which was a very modern invention, never seen in Scotland before, had uh, instead of being the metalwork being iron, it was all silver. Huh. So she set off with this enormous train of eighteen ships and ran into storms and was beaten back to the, the coast of Norway at least at least twice. And she she ended up in Oslo, poor poor thing, you know, sick and traumatized. It's proposed that she would set out in in lighter vessels that they, they'd be able to make it. And there was a bit of argument. The Scots said yes, yes, just get into a small ship. And her Danish train said no, no, wait till spring. But Anne said no, she would she would go on. She'd go on to Scotland. But James decided that it would be much safer if he went to fetch her himself. So off he went, being somewhat romantic in his his view. He thought he was in love and he was dying to see his new bride. Went off to uh, Norway, where Anne had um, landed, and then they travelled to Denmark together and then they got married and so forth. But when he came, when they came back, he became to, he came to believe that the storms had been whipped up by witches. Because it wasn't just the ships that Anne was traveling in that had been, you know, damaged by storms, but another a small boat crossing the Firth of Force with Lady Kennedy in it, who was who was appointed to to wait on the new queen, that sank as well with, um, you know, forty forty passengers and plate and jewels and furniture all being prepared for Anne, and he became convinced that that it, it was witchcraft, partly because the Danish admiral, whose name was Peter Monk, gave out that he thought the storms had been brewed up by the wife of somebody he had quarrelled with, who was reputed to be a witch. So this all then, you know, it literally was a perfect storm. So with the loss of Lady Kennedy, some of the ships, the rumours that it was witchcraft, another rumour that one of James's nobles, the Earl of Bothwell, was considered to be, or his family were considered to be, been dabbling in witchcraft. Sort of led to to the great witch hunts, and we have to remember that people did believe in witchcraft, and some people really did believe that they themselves were witches. It wasn't necessarily that it was just other people accusing people. Some people genuinely, you know, thought that they could brew up storms and and do do things like that, and which obviously we don't tend to think nowadays. So this this all you know really got quite out of hand, and there there were huge witch hunts, which might have happened anyway but certainly were this was a sort of a catalyst for for james taking an interest in in the whole witchcraft thing so where can we go to learn more about her there isn't much published about anne herself she mostly just comes comes through as a character in 
biographies of James or sort of general histories of Scotland. One of the sidelights on Anne occurs in, in the book Unnatural Murder about the famous murder of Thomas Overbury. Huh, interesting. Yeah, now you've got my interest all peaked. I'm right about that sometime. It's it's most peculiar. <laughs> yeah, Unnatural Murder. It's by Anne Somerset. She's, she's quite a heavy writer, but uh, she's certainly got a lot of detail in there. Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us about Anne of Denmark. For more information on her, go to tutortimes.co.uk. You can also see the resources available on the EnglandCast site at englandcast.com. And also remember to go there by the 11th of November to enter the giveaway for the quote mugs. I will be back next week with an episode on another Anne, Anne of Cleves. This is a listener request from Hannah. So I'm working on that for you, Hannah. All right, stay tuned. And in the meantime, have an awesome week, you guys. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, a sandful baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrick, that solely Sam Lee's on seat. Men's cool maiden of me, fair and freight of thunder. In all this war, Felicia won a board of blood and a bone. Never yet in Houston on, not so merry in London. Blow northern wind, send for maybe sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Here is Derelworth in die, Grazius, a Stoughton guy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.